So, Father, in this moment, we pray together for you to open our hearts and to minister to us and to teach us. We ask, we pray this in Jesus' name together. We pray you would anoint our ears and give our hearts understanding now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today we're going to study and think about one of the Jewish feasts, namely the Feast of Trumpets. It's more commonly known as Rosh Hashanah, which means the first, the head of the year. But the biblical name for it is Yom Teruah from Numbers 29. And so before we get to this autumn feast, I want to lay a foundation of the feasts overall. So here we go. In the time of Moses, there were seven annual feasts that God instituted. There were the spring feasts and the autumn feasts. The spring feasts are made up of the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was on the following day, and then on the following day, the the Feast of Firstfruits. Fifty days later, uh, the last of the spring feasts is the Feast of Pentecost. And then the fall feast is the Feast of Trumpets, which we're looking at today, the Day of Atonement, which we're looking at next week, and lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles the week after. These seven feasts were observed with three trips or pilgrimages that the Jews around Israel would make to Jerusalem to celebrate together at the temple. The first feast was celebrated in the Jewish month of Nisan, nothing to do with a car or anything like that. The month of Nisan, it falls in line with our uh, March or April. It's when we as a church celebrate Easter. The 14th day, Passover. The next day, unleavened bread, which lasted for a week. And then on that, uh, the 16th day, was the Feast of Firstfruits. The second pilgrimage was called Pentecost, the first called Passover, the second called Pentecost, where they just celebrated that one feast on the 6th of Sivan. That's about May on our calendar. And that brings us to the autumn feast, which is celebrated in the month of Tishrei, which is about September, which is why we're looking at them today. The Feast of Trumpets on the first day, then 10 days later, the Day of Atonement, and on the 15th, for about a week, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the book of Leviticus that puts these seven feasts in order for us, in the order of observance. We read in Leviticus 23, 2, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy assemblies, these are my feasts, says the Lord. So God institutes these feasts. He lays them out on a timeline for them to be observed. And then he says, these are my feasts. The Hebrew word for feast, moed, is appointed times or appointments. And there is something profound and incredible that is hidden or embedded in the Old Testament feasts. That God says, these feasts are pointing to my appointments. What does that mean? It means that the Old Testament feasts are prophetic in nature and they point ahead to a divine timeline of God yet to be fulfilled. You say, wow, I know. It's incredible that 1500 years BC, when God gave Moses these feasts, that God 
in the only way that he can, would give these feasts to be a timeline and each feast having incredible details pointing to something ahead. Now, if that's true, what are the feasts pointing ahead to? It's the New Testament, of course, that answers this question for us. Colossians 2.16 says, A feast, or new moon, a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So what is that saying? The feasts, of course, they served a, a literal practical purpose. They were times of memorial. They were times of celebration. They rejoiced in the harvest. But the New Testament tells us also that the feasts were prophetic and they pointed to Christ, the person and the work of Christ. So let's go back to our chart. The Feast of Passover, perhaps this is the most well-known and obvious one, was fulfilled at the death of Christ, for he was the lamb that was slain. The unleavened bread fulfilled the next day was when Jesus' body was put in the tomb. The first fruits, which was on the third day after Passover, was fulfilled at his resurrection. Fifty days later, on the Feast of Pentecost, was when the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. That was the fulfillment of that feast. And take note, not only were the feasts fulfilled by Christ in his first and his second coming, but they were fulfilled particularly on that day. He died on the Passover. The resurrection was on first fruits. The church was born on Pentecost. Incredible. And then the future feasts, to yet to be fulfilled is the Feast of Trumpets, which is fulfilled at the future resurrection of those saints that are in Christ and that have passed on, and the rapture of those that will be alive at that time. The Day of Atonement is fulfilled at Israel's ultimate future salvation as a nation, which ushers in the second coming of Christ. And then lastly, Tabernacles is fulfilled with the establishment of Christ's kingdom on the earth. So let's, um, let's look at this a little bit more in detail. When you think about the spring feasts, they were fulfilled already. We can look back and see that they were fulfilled at his first coming. The autumn feasts are yet to be fulfilled at his second coming. So, so to speak, prophetically on the calendar, we are between the last spring feast and we are waiting for the first autumn feast. We are waiting for the sound of the trumpet for the next feast to come. So let's think. Passover was on the 14th of Nisan, and it was a memorial feast. It was for them to remember or commemorate when they were delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea, through the blood of the Lamb. And that became... Um, uh, a memorial feast. Each family was to choose a lamb and to sacrifice the lamb, apply the blood to the doorposts, and when, the, when judgment would pass over, that's where the name comes from, any household that had the blood applied by faith would be spared judgment. Interestingly enough, at the Last Supper at Passover, when Jesus took the elements, he said something profound. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Not the lamb that delivered them from Egypt, but do it in remembrance of me. For he was basically saying, I am the Passover lamb, and this is my body and my blood that is given for you. Paul says something profound about the Passover. In 1 Corinthians 5.7, he says, For indeed, Christ, 
our Passover was sacrificed for us. What was Paul saying? He was saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Jesus is the true lamb that every lamb that was sacrificed all through history was pointing to and waiting for. Jesus is the Passover lamb. In Exodus 12, where it speaks about the Passover, it also says that no bone of the lamb should be broken. So in John's Gospel, we read, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was ready to die, they did not break his legs, which they would normally do to hasten the death of someone who is crucified, for Jesus has already passed on. These things were done, John says, that the scriptures should be fulfilled. And then quoting from Exodus 12, he says that not one of his bones shall be broken. What was John saying? The same as Paul. He was saying Jesus fulfilled the Passover lamb. He was the Passover lamb. And Peter also says to us, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And listen to this phrase, a lamb without blemish and without spot. Because also in Exodus 12, it said that the lamb, as best as possible, was to be a perfect lamb without blemish or without spot. And Christ, who was without sin, fulfilled that. So Jesus said of himself, and Paul, and Peter, and John, all clearly bear witness to the fact that Jesus was the Passover lamb. On the following day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days they would eat bread without leaven, and they were to consider their deliverance from Egypt. Central to this feast, not the lamb, but the bread. And the bread was called the matzah, which also means bread of affliction. This bread spoke of the person of Christ, particularly in his body. In Jewish law, there were three conditions for the matzah bread. First of all, it had to be unleavened, because in the scriptures, leaven spoke of evil or particularly spoke of sin. And Jesus was without sin. So the bread that typified him was bread that was without leaven. It also had to be striped because it was baked in the oven and it was striped a certain way, which pictured the fact that Jesus would be striped for us through the Roman scourging in his passion. And lastly, it was to be pierced. They pierced it so that it would bake evenly, but typically it pictured the fact that Jesus would be pierced in his side and his hands for us. So the matzah bread prophetically spoke of Jesus' body, and that's why he broke the bread and said, this is my body that is given for you. On the next day is the Feast of first fruits. And again, what's amazing is Jesus died on the Passover, and then on the third day, to fulfill the Feast of first fruits, he rose from the grave. Central to this feast is not the lamb, not the bread, but it was a sheaf offering. It was the first fruits offering. They would take the first fruits of the harvest, make it into a sheaf, and the priest would wave that offering before the Lord, and that sheaf represented the rest of the harvest to come. This would be waved after the Sabbath, in other words, the Sunday. And what was it that happened on the Sunday? But Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, fulfilling the Feast of first fruits. Again, we see Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the what? 
first fruits of then that sleep. In other words, he was the first fruit of the resurrection, waiting for the harvest and the resurrection that will follow, namely the church. In verse 23, he says again, this is the order of the resurrection, every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Fifty days later was the feast of Pentecost. Shavuot in the Hebrew or Pentecost in the Greek, it means 50, for 50 days after the feast of first fruits. And central to this feast was two loaves with leaven. The loaves had to have leaven because the loaves represented the church, and the church is filled, made up of sinners. But another important ingredient to these loaves was that they were to be mixed with oil, and oil in the scripture speaks of what? The Holy Spirit. For we are sinners, yet we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Two loaves, because there were two outpourings of the Holy Spirit, perhaps, this is an explanation in Acts 2 and Acts 10 to the Jews and the Gentiles. But the loaves were one offering before the Lord because two had been made one in the church. So now, as we said, we are between the fulfilled spring feasts and we are waiting for the autumn feast. We are at a time, if you like, where the harvest is being gathered. We are waiting for when the trumpet sounds. Actually, not a trumpet but a shofar or a ram's horn. Are you with me, shofar? <laughs> so this sets us up to speak about the Feast of Trumpets, again, Yom Teruah, which literally means the day of blowing the shofar. This was on the seventh month of Tishri, and again, as we've mentioned, that feast falls on today. So if you were in Israel today, this feast would be being celebrated all over the place. So the feast starts with the sounding of the trumpets or the sounding of the shofar. Um, if you go to Israel, uh, you see where the Temple Mount is and where the wall of the city would have been. There is a, a corner piece, a trumpeting stone where to every Sabbath and to, to signify the beginning and during of every feast, there will be one on that cornerstone high up, sounding the shofar across Jerusalem, and everyone would know that the feast has begun. Now, there are said to be a hundred sounds of the trumpet on this feast day, and they are different types. There is one that is the tekiah, which is a long, single blast, then there is the shevarim, which is sure, three short blasts in a row. And then there is the teruah, which is staccato notes of short sounds. There will be a mixture of these sounds for 99 sounds. But the final sound, the main final last trump of the feast, which was called the tekiah godola, would, would be the last final sound. It was the great blast or known as the last Trump. And that's nothing to do with American politics. So in Leviticus 23, the priest was told there will be a Sabbath rest and then a memorial of blowing of the trumpets. That's the day, Yom, of Teruah, blowing the trumpets. Now, 
You'll notice there it says memorial. This, as many of the other feasts, were memorial feasts. In other words, they look back to something. So what did the Feast of Trumpets look back to? It looks back to Mount Sinai, where the Jews were given the law as God's covenant people. We read in Exodus 19, verse 13, when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near to the mountain. Now, what's incredible about what happened at Mount Sinai is that there wasn't a man or a priest blowing the shofar. This trumpet came from the heavens. This trumpet came from the heavens at the mount and the people heard it. This trumpet, if you will, was the trumpet of God or the trumpet from the heavens. In verse 16, it says, When it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very, what? Very loud. So that all the people that were in the camp trembled. Verse 17, Moses brought the people out of the camp to do what? To meet with God. This is what happened at this time. The people were to meet with God. This is what the trumpet signified, that that they would meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it. Notice these words, that they would meet with the Lord, that he would descend upon the mount, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Verse 19. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by a voice. Then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. So this feast looked back to when God came down. In the same way, the feast looks forward to when he will ultimately return to set up his kingdom on the earth. Now, That being said, we need to say a few things about the future uh, prophecy and the end times. Don't worry if you get a bit lost in this. Uh, It's like painting by numbers. Slowly, slowly it comes into view, but we'll look at it together. We are now waiting for when the trumpet will sound. This is a prophetic future event that is spoken of in the New Testament. The context is the return of Christ. The context, the sounding of the trumpet of God from the heavens will will be announcing the soon arrival or return of the Son of God. If we will put this on a timeline, the the prophecies speak of an all-important period of seven years at the end of the age. If you would put human history on a timeline, at the end of the age, there will be a period of seven years. At the end of that seven years is when Christ will fully return and be on the earth. But this seven years begins with the rise of a notorious figure in the scriptures known as the Antichrist. He will be a powerful world leader. He will gather a league of ten nations. He will set up a one world government. And he will make a covenant with Israel. A seven year covenant that he will break halfway through uh, three and a half years in. He will break the covenant. Then it will be revealed who he really is. By then he has deluded and deceived the nations, but at the midpoint it will be revealed that he is the Antichrist. 
He will set up an image of himself in the newly built temple in Jerusalem to be worshipped as God, and he will unleash an incredible persecution on the saints, particularly the Jews, but I imagine all believers. That will be the start of what's called the Great Tribulation. In Matthew 24, 21, Jesus says, when you see the image in the temple, which is called the abomination of desolation, when you see that image, if you are in Judah as a Jew, he says, flee to the mountains. Why? Because verse 21, a great tribulation will come upon you that has never been seen upon the earth before. We are told, I think it's Zechariah 13, 7 or somewhere there, that out of the Jews that begin the tribulation, only one-third will survive. It will be a holocaust that the world is like has never seen. And that one-third that survive will make it to the end of the, this seven-year period and find their faith in the Lord. Now, this period of the Great Tribulation is followed by a period called the wrath of the Lamb. The Old Testament refers to this period called the Day of the Lord. But the Bible says that the church, that's you and I, or that last generation of believers during this time, will not be appointed to wrath. It's 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He has delivered us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9. We are not appointed to wrath. So we know that the church is going to be removed during this time from the earth before the wrath of the Lamb comes. When exactly? There are different views on this. Some believe the church will be removed from the earth. That's called the rapture. At the beginning of the seven years, others say the midpoint. Others say it will happen right before the wrath of the Lamb. What we do know is that the rapture will take place before the wrath of the Lamb. That's between the sixth and the seventh seal for you end times buffs out there. Also at the end of that period is when Israel as a remnant will be saved. Are you with me so far? Yeah? Okay. I want to read a passage to you in the, from the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 4. Listen carefully, and this defines this all-important event. Paul writes and says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, unless you sorrow as those who have no hope. Now, when we lose a loved one, of course, we sorrow. But if they are believers, we sorrow with hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself, and listen to this phrase, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. There it is, the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, or that generation that will be alive at that time, will be caught up together to meet them in the air. The, the Greek word for to be caught up is harpazo, to snatch away. Or the Latin version of that is rapturo. It's where we get the word rapture. I remember speaking to a pastor, a local pastor one time, and do you believe in the rapture? He said, what, the, that word that's not even in the Bible? 
And I said, well, the word incarnation isn't in the Bible. You do believe in the incarnation? It's like a foolish thing to say. It comes from the Latin. It comes from that phrase to be snatched away. The church will be snatched away. When will it happen? At the trumpet of God. Now, what did that mean to the readers or the listeners? There is no other illusion than that which the Feast of Trumpets actually looked back to when there will be a trumpet from the heavens. No man sounded the shofar, but it came from the heavens. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And what he's saying by that is that there will be a generation, could be this generation, or a future generation of the church that will still be alive when the Lord returns. So Paul says, I tell you, we shall not all sleep, in other words, go into the grave, but we shall all be changed in a moment. He says, in the twinkling of an eye, and then he says, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. Can we say that? The trumpet will sound. Hello, let's just say that again. You can, but there's no question mark over that. The trumpet will sound. The last trumpet, the trump of God, and it will, it will be signaling that the Lord's return is here. And the readers would have understood when he used this term with the definite article, the last trump, they would make the connection to the feast, that great last trump of the feast. Paul is saying here, that the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets will happen at the resurrection and the translation of the saints. Now, in Matthew 24, 36, it says that no man knows the day or the hour. Interestingly enough, this is really the only feast that you are not 100% sure exactly what day it falls on. This is because they will be waiting for a new moon. They would count 29 and a half days from one new moon to the next, and they were never quite sure exactly what day it would fall on. So they would have two witnesses watching the sky, waiting for that first slither to appear of the new moon. And when they saw that slither, they would sound the shofar across Jerusalem, and people would know that Yom Teruah is here. Are you with me, shofar? So I have to use that joke now. I can't use it any other time. Show far, show good. Okay. Now, my kids are cringing. Dad. All right. Now, this feast, this day, on the 1st of Tishrei, the Feast of Trumpets, began what's called 10 days of awe or repentance. You'll see there on the first day, Yom Teruah. On the tenth day, the most high and holy of all days on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. These ten days are significant. They're very significant. They're between the feasts, but they are the days of awe or days of repentance. During this time, the Jews would be repenting. They would be sorrowful. They would be confessing their sin. They would cause affliction to themselves by self-denial and not eating, etc. It, it was a time of great sorrow where they would be broken before God because they understood that when Yom Kippur came, this was the one day in the year when the high priest would go all the way through to the Holy of Holies, interceding and working on behalf of the people through sacrifice, that God would forgive 
all of the nation's sins one time a year, they will get a clean slate on Yom Kippur. That's why this is the most important day to them, because this day is when we repent as a nation and God forgives us as a nation on Yom Kippur. So what happened on Yom Kippur is the nation repented and the nation was forgiven. Prophetically, that is what this feast looks forward to. It looks forward to that last event at the end of the seven years when that one-third remnant of Israel will repent and will be forgiven as a nation. This is what is meant in Romans 11.26 where it says all of Israel shall be saved. It's looking to that yet future event. So, as we study the feast in conclusion this morning, we can see that the spring feasts have been fulfilled and that should create wonder in our hearts as believers, uh, as students of the Bible, as disciples, as we are growing in understanding and faith together. We look at the feast and we, there is wonder in our heart and praise to God that he has, he has written that into those ceremonies and feasts and sacrifices. What a wonder that is. If I didn't believe the Bible, I'd believe it now. But there are clear prophecies, hundreds of them that are written that predict this will happen and we see that it happened, that Jesus fulfilled 333 prophecies in his first coming and there are hundreds yet waiting for him to fulfill at his second coming. We have those written prophecies, but we also have these prophecies in type, that the Lamb is the, is the type of Christ and Christ is the antitype that that in itself is a hidden, beautiful, mysterious, but clear prophetical fulfillment. And now we stand between the spring feasts that have been fulfilled, and we are looking to the autumn feasts for them to be fulfilled. We can have as much assurance looking forwards as we can looking back. We can be sh as sure that those prophecies will be fulfilled as those prophecies have been fulfilled because God is the one who prophesied all. God is the one who brings them all to fruition. God is the one who does not change and cannot lie and is working in human history to bring about his purposes. So we, so we are in this harvest time of church age. We are waiting for the trumpet to sound. We are looking ahead to the fulfillment of these end time prophecies and it gives birth to a living hope in our hearts. Sadly, too much of Christianity looks back to the cross only. We understand how beautiful and important that is, and we do that all the time. But also, we should be looking forwards. We are not only looking back to the Lamb who was slain, but we are looking forwards to the King who will reign. And we have a living hope in our hearts. So we are amazed to see how the trumpets will be fulfilled at the resurrection and the rapture of the saints that the Day of Atonement will be fulfilled at the end of the seven years when the national remnant of Israel will turn to the Lord and recognize the Messiah that was crucified. In Zechariah 12.10 it says, They will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn as a father would mourn the loss of his only son. Interesting language in the fact that God gave his only son 
and he was rejected. But that's what it says, that they will be mourning and sorrow and weeping, and that will usher in the return of the Lord. And then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles to be fulfilled in the, at the inauguration of Christ's kingdom on earth. What is sure for us, and the point that we would like to close on this morning, is as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, that we read together, for the trumpet shall sound. For the trumpet shall sound. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, at the end of the other passage we read, it ends with these words, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. So, Father, we thank you this morning that we could take this time and study your word. We could consider these prophecies and these feasts that our hearts could marvel at your ways, at your plan, at your majesty, at your person. Oh, we thank you, Jesus. Thank you. What a joy and a privilege to be Christians, to know you, to look to you, to believe in you this morning. We praise you and glorify you for all that you have done and all that you shall do. We thank you for the living hope that is in our hearts, waiting for that trumpet sound with full assurance of your goodness and your work. Perhaps as one here this morning, you are not sure of your salvation. You're not sure if you died today, would you be with the Lord? Or listen, this is your, your moment, for God loves you, and Jesus died for you. And he is the Savior, and he says, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. If you just put your faith in him, acknowledge that you are a sinner, and turn to him, look to him, and say, Jesus, save me today, that I would be born again, that you would give me a new life and the gift of salvation. Thank you for saving me today. If you said that prayer, you can have the assurance of your salvation according to God's promise in the gospel. And for each one of us, encourage us in our faith, on our journey as disciples and students. Give us that living hope as we look to the scriptures and look to the sky. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.